Thank you very much, Ron. Hey, everybody. A very happy Saturday afternoon. And it may not be super warm out, but that giant orb in the sky, oh, it feels really good. And I know we're going to great places, as Ron just mentioned, with the temperatures. So uh, enjoy it, right? Let's soak it in. Let's forget about complaining about the last, what, 45 days of cloud and rain. It's in the past. Let's focus on the future. And coming up, speaking of the future, let's get legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. It's a little show we do every Saturday afternoon now from 1 till 3 o'clock. And we've got Michael Leonard on. He is a defense attorney, a powerhouse at that. And he often defends federal uh, cases A fascinating guy, and every time we have him in, the phone lines light up with just interesting questions, whether it's about whistleblowing, whether it's about how federal juries are picked, just really cool stuff. So, you know, prime the pump a little bit in your brain to start thinking of a question. And I've got a question for you. It's our question of the day. If you know the answer or you just want to take a guess, 312-981-7200. Here it is. I don't know if anyone's going to get this. Mm, I'll have to give some clues, but here we go. On January 1st, 1980, Massachusetts became the last state to lift their ban on what? So all 49 states had already stopped banning this. Massachusetts was the last one to stop banning it, and that was on January 1st, 1980. 312-981-7200. If you have any guesses, we'll get an answer and plenty more coming up next. Let's get legal powered by the Illinois State Bar Association here on 720 WGN. Michael Leonard, how you doing, my friend? Good, John. How are you? Good. It's all I love when I see that you're on the schedule to chat because you always are a fascinating dude to talk with. So are you, John. Oh. So are you. <laughs> Teed you right up for that. For people that don't know you, give us a little bit of your background. Sure. As as we've talked about before, I try a lot of cases and uh focus probably about seventy five percent on federal and state criminal cases, mm-hmm. and then the other twenty five percent representing individuals in whistleblower cases and employment cases against uh, big companies. And and you're the you're a defense attorney. I am well, I'm I'm defense and criminal cases. Right. In the civil cases I'm representing the little guy, the good guy, John, against the big corporations. So you're kind of always representing the little guy no matter the situation. Yeah, it's against good. the man. It's fun. It's fun going against the man as we as we have discussed. <laughs> Michael versus the man. <laughs> that should just be what you call the firm instead. Yeah, or, yeah. Michael. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that from a marketing standpoint that would go very well, but you know <laughs> I guess we could try. Wow, way to insult my marketing prowess there. <laughs> no. uh, so, uh, by the way, did you have an answer to the question of the day? What Massachusetts was the last state to, out, to, to, to release their ban on in 1980? Well, the only answer I could come up with, which is a bad one, is that maybe the people of Boston decided to let people who weren't from Boston live in their town. But uh, I, I don't think that's the right answer. You think they're a little territorial in yeah, Boston? Yeah, I'd say a little bit. Are Chicagoans a little that way, too? Yeah, we're pretty bad, too. But Boston seems even worse. But yeah. well, you'll probably get some calls on that, hopefully, John. Yeah, if, with, the, with, the, with the breadth of, of the range of your station. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening to WGNRadio.com and you're in Boston, give us a call, 312-981-7200. Okay, you've got to tell me. I saw your notes this morning. I didn't know if you were just looking for me to respond to the email or what, but you said that the first thing you wanted to talk about was shark bites. What are we talking about here? Well, sure. Well, first of all, you know, with this show being sponsored by the Illinois State Bar Association, Uh aren't we also trying to prove that lawyers are people too? Yes. At at least allegedly, right? (laughs) Yes. Uh So. So I had an idea that we should introduce this this topic where many years ago I represented these individuals, a husband and wife that had a case in Florida that we were fighting and a case in California we were fighting. So 
they they dubbed me their shark for for my aggressive nature. But wait, you were fighting two cases for this couple? Yeah, in yeah, two they, different states. Yeah, they were basically whistleblowers in two cases in Florida and California. And so, but we had to travel a lot because of that. So then mm-hmm. together, so they would say I'm their shark because they liked my aggressive nature, but. They also noticed that as we would travel and go to these different towns, I'd always be looking for the hole in the wall place to go to to eat, right? Uh-huh. So they said, you should, do a, you should do a cookbook or book called Shark Bites, right? Oh. And of course, I never did it. But what a great opportunity to introduce the concept to your show, uh-huh. you know, and also kind of test your own street cred, John. Oh, and this is trouble. Yeah, it could be. Wait, are it you going to do some trivia with me or something? No, or you're well, try and so test my at, knowledge? At, when you go to any new city as, as a trial lawyer, you've got to discover that hole in the wall, mm-hmm. that hidden gem, that sandwich shop, that pizza slice place, right? Mm-hmm. So, but why, why don't we start with Chicago and, you know, throw one out there, that, which I think is a quintessential shark bike location, okay. which is, is worthy of that, which is, I'll say, for the, the topic of sub sandwiches, I would go with Bari. Bari Grocery Store on Grand Avenue in Chicago as making the best subs in Chicago. It's a little tiny Italian grocery store on Grand Avenue, a little west of Milwaukee. Okay. And it's about three aisles. It goes, it's probably about only about 20 feet deep. Uh But at the back of the store, if you've never been in there, there's the deli counter where there's like four or five guys making subs furiously because it's so popular. So okay. I would throw that out as the first Shark Bikes location. Okay, in and Chicago. And then see, if, see what you, first of all, are you even aware of it, John? No, I not. And I used to live by near Grand in Milwaukee, too, a little bit northwest of there. I'm surprised. So it's a grocery slash they'll make your sandwiches yeah, for so you. Yeah, so it's a little grocery store, but really what they're famous for is the subs in the back. Okay. So I would throw that out as, as the best Chicago sub worthy of a, of a Shark Bite visit by any attorney here or a citizen right can i give you a can i give you one of my own as a shark yeah, I'd like to, I'm, and it would be kind of a test of your credibility right jp graziano's sure west sure. loop i'm not that familiar with it to be honest okay with you. yeah four generations it's been around since 1937 at randolph and just west of halstead so i think green mm, and okay. uh they've reinvested they used to be a wholesaler of italian groceries okay and the fourth uh guy who's taken over now jim he's the great grandson of the guy who originally started it Good. he pivoted a little bit more to sub sandwiches it saved him during covid because the west loop has changed so much so many people live there now he just opened up a window we're able to sell the sandwiches through there and you when you walk in Michael, it smells like there's olive oil and spices uh, in yeah. the floorboards. Oh, that's awesome! That's yeah. a, it sounds very worthy. Yes. It's, so I, I think you've you've proven your your All right. your, your <laughs> worth on the shark bite topic. Right. I'm lucky that I host a show called Chicago Food to Go, where we go to different food spots around the area as well. Oh, do you? So, yeah, exactly. Oh, I haven't heard that. I got to check that out. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks. Well, we got to get one more viewer. Thanks a lot, Michael Leonard. All right. That's good. So are you are you speaking this into the ether so that you eventually do write this book, this um, shark bite? I think I'll never get around to it, but. If, if I periodically appear on your show, we can introduce different cities yes. and, and use the concept of shark bites for that particular city. Well, and also we've got a 50,000-watt megaphone right here, 312-981-7200. Sure. Where is your shark bite in Chicago? And then each time you come on, we'll pick another city. How sure. does that sound? That sounds great. I'm, I, I'm all aboard. I want to know where to go in Pittsburgh, Milwaukee. Well, my wife will hate that this actually gained some traction with you because she's tired of me coming back from a trip and saying, hey, how the trial go was awesome. We won. But I found this great deli in Kansas City or this amazing cheeseburger in Detroit, you know? So do you do the same thing with like watering holes too? Like you find the dive bar? Oh, I love right? them. I love yeah. them. But I would put out there my favorite, which no longer exists, sadly. 
Johnny's used to be on Lincoln. We talked about right that near time, Southport. Yeah. That was the that was the best ever. Yeah, yeah. There's some. I like Archie's Tavern. It's at Rockwell and Walton, maybe one block south. Rockwell and Rice, I think. Old place. One of the first liquor licenses they gave back after Prohibition. Corner corner spot. They've got a big big Marlin on the wall. One pool table. Dogs nice. are allowed inside. Yeah, and a big thing of cheese balls you can eat. So yeah, and the sad go. part is there's so few of those great places left. That's the sad part. Even in Chicago, you know. You just want to talk about this for an hour? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm sure it would be much more interesting than law to our <laughs> listeners, you know. But uh, we we can also touch upon the law if you want. Yeah, no, for sure. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. By the way, what what did you what uh, you 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 mentioned the whole escape crisis and with the with the couple? Are the, you tracking that? Are yeah, you that's watching really that? interesting. So I saw the article you're talking about. It mm-hmm. said the headline of why Americans are so fascinated with these escape hat you know plots and mm-hmm. all that stuff. What what was their conclusion? Why we love it so much? Uh, I think it's the that we like it because it's current and the adrenaline of it, and it's like voyeuristic that we can imagine ourselves where we would go, what we would do, and we can kind of live vicariously through that. Not that we, because most of us are law-abiding citizens who would never do any of the things that are alleged in this case or others. Yeah. But there's a fascination behind it, right? Oh, I totally find myself fascinated. I'm watching every day to figure out where, what's the next clue, where, where are they? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's great. And I think, don't you think that most people, as they watch and think about, it, they're like, Kind of hoping these people continue to be on the lam for longer. They they right. want they don't they don't want them to get caught. Don't you think that? I think that people. I I think that in their heart of hearts, if they, you know, they were like, well, someone's going to be in danger. If, if we knew that something happened at the end that was bad, people would say, no, let's get them yeah. where they need to go. But yeah, I I think we're just fascinated by the the length of it too, the drama unfolding. We have very few things in our lives, you know, everything's so instantaneous. We get resolutions so quickly. Even the TV shows we binge, yeah. we find out a day later what happened because we yeah. watched the whole thing. There's something serial about it. It's almost like our old radio shows and yeah. adventures and detective stories. I think the tough one with this guy to hide is he's he's six nine, right? So- it seems like anywhere he gets out of his car or goes into anywhere, he'll be like a target. Be so obvious. So right. I think that's will be an interesting angle. How does he keep? How does he avoid right. the public view? So you would you would hope you would think not hope, but you would think they're probably hunkered down somewhere. Yeah, you know? and it also it makes it interesting. I think and why it's fascinating to us um, is because. Or by the way, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the correctional officer who seemingly allegedly helped this uh, you know murder suspect who was waiting trial on it. Uh, escape from prison. They might be lovers. I mean, there's a lot of things we don't quite know for sure yet, but basically helped him get out. And, and then they, they left their car in Nashville. That was a week ago. So I think there's also this element of they could be, I could be, look out this window right now, right? And then yeah. they could be here. They could be there. Yeah. And there's, uh, uh, it makes your heart putter a little bit, right? No, no doubt. Yeah. It's it's really, really fascinating. I'm, I'm definitely uh, like you watching every day. Yeah, for sure. Have you been watching the uh, Johnny Depp trial at all? I, you know, speaking of voyeuristic, I don't like watching two people fight and really dive into personal stuff. And I think it's sort of a shame on all of us for looking in. But then I do read the summaries, right? Like, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but I can't, I can't watch it live or watch watch the video. It's too, it it hurts me a little bit. To yeah. Watch. Well, I was kind of surprised. First of all, he's the one that filed this case. He mm-hmm. filed the lawsuit in Virginia State Court saying that I was defamed by Amber Heard, right? Right. Um, which I thought was a really interesting choice because he had gone to trial in England, claiming mm-hmm. that the newspaper had defamed him, and lost that case. And in that case, all this information came out about him that was extremely negative. That he beat her up. That 
a lot of negative things about his personality, drug use, all that stuff was really aired. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised that he made the choice then to come back to the States, litigate another case where the allegations and all his conduct were going to be at issue again. So I'm a little surprised. Yeah. Um, the other thing I found really surprising is I was talking to one of my kids about the case who's in high school. And his view of, you know, what he's been consuming in on the news and social media versus what I have, mm-hmm. completely different. Really? He basically told me that everybody in his age group believes that Johnny Depp's going to win. They believe Johnny Depp. They don't believe Amber Heard, which I was shocked at because my in my age group and what I'm reading, it's exactly the opposite. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what's your take on what you're reading? We're reading to the same thing that she feels like people in her age group, she's a little younger than me, but same thing. Yeah. On Twitter, I just see so much pro johnny depp stuff as opposed to uh the other way around i wonder yeah. what the what what's at play there it actually may play into a question that jennifer has i'm we have to take a news break jennifer do not go anywhere that's an awesome question on the line we got a lot more to chat about with michael leonard but yeah the johnny depp thing is interesting um i wanted to ask you know obviously we're watching all these cameras just really quickly do federal cases the ones you do they allow cameras in those courtrooms Generally, absolutely no. So um, the federal cases, I think there's a, I think there's a ban still on them. So I've never been involved in a federal case where they actually televised it. I think requests have been made in various cases to do that have been rejected. There's no reason they couldn't be, mm-hmm. but generally a lot of judges disfavor that. They think it takes away from the decorum of the court. They think it makes act the lawyers uh, act differently, maybe turn into actors. There's a perception that, you know, witnesses might be influenced to testify differently. I, I don't know if I really believe any of that, but... You um, had a slight smile on your face when you said it might make the lawyers act differently. Well, yeah. Would I you mean, play I mean, the cameras a little bit? Well, I just think there, there, there's that danger, certainly. I yeah. mean, I think that people could act a little differently, knowing that the whole world or, or a, a large percentage of the population is watching your case. I mean, I think it would have to cross your mind what, yeah. what the perception is going to be of, of how you perform. I mean, maybe put a little extra pressure on you, but... Uh, I would certainly enjoy it. Yeah. All right, it's a grab bag of questions today for Michael Leonard, 312-981-7200. We'll answer them, including Jennifer's after the news here on WGN. All right, let's get legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, we got Michael Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers, leonardtriallawyers.com. Uh, Michael, you want to put on your headphones if you don't mind? You sure. got a little dial there, too, because that's how you hear the callers. Okay. You hear me? Yes. All right, good. Headphones are working. Let's get Jennifer on the line. Jennifer, you have an awesome question. What is it? Thanks. I can't um, hear you, I know actually. Mike has talked oh. a lot about representing a lot of people in criminal cases in both state and federal court. Mm-hmm. I was wondering whether Mike has represented any women in those criminal cases, and if he does, does that change the strategy? All right, so Michael, the caller wants to know, have you represented women in federal or state courts, and if so, does it change the strategy at all? Oh, yeah, definitely have represented women in federal court and state court, more so in federal court. Um, it's interesting because in, in federal court, and they just came out with this on 2021, every year the federal the federal court comes out with, or the Federal Sentencing Commission comes out with a book called the Source Book, and it tells you all the stats mm-hmm. about all the people who came through the federal system who were sentenced in that year or who went to trial. Mm-hmm. So, so it shows you that... You know, 13% of the people that were sentenced last year were women in federal court versus, you know, 87% men. So okay. that just shows you that. And does that remain pretty steady, that 13 I, I think so, yeah. Okay. I think, I mean, it might even be a little lower than that. I mean, my experience, I would have guessed without seeing the book, it was probably 10% women in federal court versus yeah. 90% 90, men. 90, 10 versus, that, okay. That, so that seems pretty 
accurate. So, yeah, definitely have had case uh, for women in, in federal court. And, you know, state court, I, I would say those numbers are probably double mm-hmm. uh, because there's more street crimes charged against women in state court, you know, versus federal court. Those cases wouldn't be typically charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in federal court, you still have drug crimes and, you know, conspiracies and fraud. So women would be charged in those types of cases. So uh, with regard to do you approach it differently, your strategy is different. I guess there's there's a couple approaches or answers to that. Number one, you're, you're still doing all the same things you need to do in terms of investigating the case, working the case up. It doesn't matter if it's a, right. a male or a female. But I, what I think is different and gives you some opportunity is there, there's a perception and there's these stereotypes that still permeate our society. Mm-hmm. And I think that for trial purposes and we'll talk about sentencing for trial purposes i think that a jury is more willing to believe that your female defendant was coerced by a co-defendant who's a male or boyfriend male co-defendant or might be less culpable and i think it kind of goes back to um, some of our stereotypes right. views of women and yeah. let me just say you're not saying that is the case yeah. you're saying that that's what you might people, be able to convince a jury of. Pe- people people believe that yeah and right. and, and sometimes it's absolutely 100 percent true um and then i think for sentencing purposes when a woman is sentenced in federal court i would say um i think there's again a much more willingness on behalf of the judges. And we can ask, you know, Judge Palmeyer in a couple of weeks when she's on your show um, to view their role in the family in a different way. Because, you know, federal courts, just like state courts, can take into account mitigating factors. In federal court, we call those 30, 35, 53 factors. In state court, just mitigation, right? But you can raise things like someone's extraordinarily fam- extraordinary family circumstances, their mm-hmm. role in the family, what impact a sentence would have on their family. And my experience, I think the federal court judges are more willing to give a break to a woman and say that we view her role in the family as more paramount. It would cause a greater hardship on her children and her family, especially if they're a single mother in, in right. the case. Um, so I think there's, there's, there, there's those views that permeate the system as well. Um, so th- those realities or perceptions, I think, obviously can have an impact about how you approach the case from a trial perspective and also from a sentencing perspective. And I just had, you know, uh, we were talking earlier, had an example of this week. Um, and, and I don't think that the, the things I'm talking about were, were necessarily at play in terms of stereotypes about mm-hmm. women. But it was a female defendant in federal court who was sentenced you know, it's a, none of this is, I'm not talking out of school. None of this okay. is, none of this is non-public. It's a okay. public proceeding where right. I'm not going to give names, but it was an individual who was middle-aged female. And again, like we talked about in federal court, that's, you're only going to have a female defendant probably 10% of the time. And, you know, she had held great, you know, positions in, in, in terms of professional work experience mm-hmm. and, but unfortunately had, you know, absconded or embezzled some money over the years. Right. Okay. So she got charged with fraud. And so we had a full sentencing hearing earlier this week on this case. And as we've was talked about... Was there a plea about, or no? Yeah, there was a plea. Okay. So as you know, the only the only two ways you end up at a sentencing hearing is you go to trial and lose. Right. Or you plea. And, you know, you bring up kind of a remarkable statistic. I looked at that source book we just talked about. In 2021, uh, in federal court across the country, 98% of the cases... Uh, were ended by a plea. One point seven were ended by a trial. Ninety eight to and, two, essentially. Yeah, isn't that amazing? So, and I think you know that's a little bit of an anomaly because twenty twenty one is a COVID year, so true, cases true. weren't going to trial. Right. But as we've talked about, I think there's probably you know five percent of the cases probably in the federal system, or ten percent, maybe somewhere in that range, probably lower, go to trial uh, on, in an, in an average year. So, mm-hmm. but that was a remarkable year. Right. 
So you represented this woman. And yeah. So, you know, so you're what you're doing in, in these cases in federal court when you go to a sentencing is, you know, there's this big thing called the federal sentencing guidelines that you've heard about and we've talked about. And what that does, it does a calculation about where a recommended sentence might lie. And that's not mandatory upon the judge. It's just something they have to consider. And the two big things are what is the offense level? How serious is the crime? Okay. And then what is the person's criminal history? So, but the problem with that structure is that even though it's just a guideline, it's just a recommendation, oftentimes it sets this artificial floor. 100%. Right? And we saw this in the Supreme Court hearings. Yeah. People really upset. A yeah. lot of people, I should say, some people, that uh, Katanji Brown Jackson went underneath those sentencing and it was seen as like this flabbergast thing. Whereas, then that's that's a problem, right? Which was very misleading. In, in the Supreme Court uh, proceedings where they're talking about, hey, judge, you, you've gone underneath the sentencing guidelines on a regular basis. Nowadays, every federal judge in the country regularly goes below those guidelines. Right. We now know that. That's a fact, right? For all sorts so, of cases. For all sorts of cases. Right. It's a regular thing because it's just a guideline, as the Supreme Court has said. But in our case, you know, they were, they were arguing, the U.S. government, that my female federal defendant should get somewhere in the range of three and a half to to four and a half years. And so, you know, you bring in things, mitigation, you know, you bring in the individual's role in the family, the fact that they have a special needs kid, the hardship it'll be on having their mother gone, all those sort of factors. And you also, you know, get people to sort of attest to their character, usually in the form of letters rather than live testimony. And so, you know, we were arguing for no time in custody. The U.S. government was arguing, hey, three and a half, four years. And, and the judge, to his credit, you know, gave her about a one-year sentence, which mm-hmm. we were pleased with. But, you know, from a client perspective, Still you're never pleased right. with getting any sentence at all. But that's what happens in federal court. You know, sometimes a win, in quotation marks, right. is getting your client a, a much less sentence than what the government is arguing for. So to sum it all up in terms of with female defendants is there are stereotypes that still exist that can come out and be, well, I don't want to hate to say it like this, but used to your advantage as a defense attorney in trial or in sentencing. It's there and, and you're able to do that. But but it's not, you know, it's not only that they're stereotypes. Sometimes they're absolutely true. Well, you especially know, so single have, moms. I yeah, mean, if you have a yes. defendant in federal court or in state court and they're, they have kids and yes. you're talking about the duration of their sentence, you're going to balance that against the severity of the crime, whether this person's a repeated offender and all those sort of things. And you might conclude that, you know, you don't need to put this person behind bars for as long as you might somebody else. And that's yep. just a mitigating factor. Jennifer, that was a long answer. How do you feel about that one? That was a great answer. That was a great answer. <laughs> sure was. Thanks for listening, Jennifer. Okay. All right, thank you. Great show. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is this is not a place for short, quick answers here. That's what we do on Let's Get Legal. We try to filibuster, John. We try to go all, all keep going until you stop me from talking. You know, Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. I want to ask you about some January 6th stuff that you've been sure. following. I'd after, love to. Yeah, after the break here on WGN. Now it's my turn to talk now. This is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. That's the problem, Michael Leonard. We have such great conversations during the commercial break. And I forget that we're on the air here. Here we <laughs> Maybe go. Maybe we could put those on. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I got a question from the text line, and this is a pretty serious one. I appreciate 312 for giving it to us. Um, can you talk about impact statements read at sentencing? My sister-in-law was killed. Justice hadn't been served given it had been almost three years since she was killed. The trial hasn't even occurred yet. First of all, 
so incredibly sorry for your loss, texter. And um, maybe their person is wondering about whether themselves or family members will need to give those impact statements. What do you know yeah. about them? How do they, how do they work? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm really sorry to hear about that. That's 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 horrible. Um, and also, it's got to be really frustrating as a victim to not get to trial speedily. Oh, and I think the real frustration is because of COVID. Over the last two years, a, a very few cases have gone to trial. But you imagine the frustration mounting from family members who are impacted by these cases and they don't see justice done. Um, but in, in 2020 and part of 2020, when there's really nothing the courts could do because they were virtually shut down, but it's not atypical, even in non-COVID years, for cases take a long time to go trial, right. which is very frustrating for people who are involved in the case. Um, and victim in- impact statements are really, I think, an important piece. And they come into play in, in, in different ways depending upon what court you're in. You know, in federal court... It's more typical for what we're calling a victim impact statement to be submitted in the form of a letter to the judge because the federal sentencing, pro- uh, federal sentencing process is typically more paper-driven. So you submit a brief on behalf of your client. The government does the same. There's a huge lengthy report called the PSR that's done by a third party by U.S. probation, and the judge has all these written materials. And so because he, he or she has all these written materials, you want them to see those letters, those either character letters on behalf of the defendant or on the side of the government, you know, could be victim impact statements. And it's not just a physical effect. It could be someone who's financially impacted. It's, it can also be because they've lost a loved one. So, uh, But also in federal court, you'll sometimes see, it's just more unusual to have people actually at the sentencing hearing and they get to speak and they get to address the court, which I think is extremely moving. Impactful, for sure. Very impactful. I mean, you, you can hear a pin drop when, when someone's you know giving a victim impact statement in federal court. State court's a little different. It would be much more typical not for that just to be in writing. It would be someone actually appearing live, um, you know, getting to face the defendant and look them down and, and tell them really how this is impacted to their face. You know, some people don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so they can certainly uh, submit it in writing or someone else can read it for them. But I think it's a huge benefit. You know, um, if you're if you're doing that on behalf of a victim, I think it's a huge benefit. The court really, I think, takes those seriously. And especially when someone's live talking to them, look in their eyes, telling them how much this impacted. And it's very different than reading it on a piece of paper. I, I've talked to someone who had to give one of those, and they said it was almost therapeutic, too. Yeah. They felt they didn't want to do it, but they thought that this would get maybe make an impact, make that person go to jail longer. And they felt like it was therapeutic afterwards. Now, that, that's not the case for everybody. I'm, yeah. I'm sure well, some people it, are traumatized by it. Oh, yeah. And it's, and it's tough to tell in a given case, you know, how much that moves the needle. But from a perspective of a lawyer or someone who's in the, in the courtroom in the proceedings seeing that, it certainly feels like it has an yeah. impact. You know, you don't know before the judge takes the bench. I mean, let's, let's face it. They've, con- they've, they've given us a lot of thought and a lot of consideration before they come out there for the sentencing right. hearing. So it's not like they're just shooting from the hip and deciding now it's going to be 14 years or right. whatever they've given a lot of thought however i really do think victim impact statements especially when given live certainly can and do move the needle on a regular basis yeah for sure uh you mind slapping those headphones on here we got an interesting question from tom hey tom you're on wgn hello how you doing good what's your question well one thing that's been overlooked in the last several years is something called jury nullification in the case of oj simpson uh, the jury didn't even discuss the blood evidence, for example. I mm-hmm. would consider that a nullification where they ignore the evidence and for their own reasons, their own agenda, determine an outcome. Uh, this 
goes to the level of federal also in certain districts, as in Miami, when you want to prosecute uh, Cubans for trying to go to Cuba to cause havoc down there, they're intercepted or arrested. They're not, they're not presented to the U.S. Attorney's Office, will not prosecute them because they know the outcome of the jury trial. Hmm. It's all because of where it's being uh, held. Interesting. Yeah. So can you yeah. talk about that a little bit, Michael? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a great point. I mean, it's something that is is a common issue that comes up no matter where you are, right? Yeah, so what is jury nullification? So it's the idea that a, a jury is going to not follow the legal instructions given to them, right? So they're, they're given this set of instructions at the close of the case. Here's how you decide the case. Here's the elements the government had to prove to prove your client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And here's the evidence presented. So what the jury's supposed to do is go back to the jury room, apply these instructions. Did the government prove each of these three elements of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt? You know, and we apply the, the jury applies the evidence and the facts to each of those elements to make that decision. So nullification goes to the concept of, hey, let's forget about the evidence and let's rely upon something such as sympathy, prejudice. We feel bad about the person. We don't think they should have been charged in the first place. And this is okay to do? No, no, no. Okay. Well, <laughs> those, no, so no, I, uh, those, yeah, those are those are examples of juror nullification, right? So, so the, who would say? So they can say the jury's nullified. This doesn't. No, 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 no. So the jury is not allowed to do that. So, okay. so what? So what happens in a case is there's there's always let's let's say in, in a typical federal case, one of the common motions filed by the government by the prosecutor's office is is called a motion in limine before the trial saying, hey, judge, you know, we want to stop defense counsel from arguing jury nullification, which, of course, we can't do anything. We, mm-hmm. we would get sanctioned. It's, it's unconstitutional. It's against the rules. We can't get up there and say, hey, jury, forget about the evidence you heard today. Oh. You know, this is a really good guy, and he you, shouldn't have been charged. You can't be and, an advocate no, for nullification. No, no, no. You, okay. you cannot seek jury nullification, right? Okay. And so, but, you know, the government, typically the prosecutors file these generic motions saying, we're trying to stop counsel from arguing jury nullification. We're not. You know, we would get shut down in a second. Right. The judge would sanction us, and, you know, we might lose our license. However, the concept in practice is, and what people's concerns are, and what the, what your listener just raised, is that juries do engage in jury nullification, meaning despite what the judge tells them. And there's always a jury instruction that says, hey, look, here's how you decide the case. Here's what you can't consider. So every set of instructions says you can't rely upon things such as prejudice or bias or, and all those sort of forbidden factors because they don't want people deciding, well, hey, look, you know, they proved it, but I think this, you know, I think this guy was targeted because of a particular reason, or I think the other guy is really the bad guy. Right. He wasn't charged. Um, you know, and what, what the caller was referring to jury nullification, in that case, the OJ case that he referred to, first of all, uh, the, the obviously we've know, we know from the documentaries that m- many of the juries basically said, look, you know, we decided in large part, you know, based upon a race-based factor, right. which is a forbidden factor. Of course, there's nothing in the jury instructions that said you can consider right. Mr. Simpson's race. But the jury candidly said after the fact, of course, we took that into into account. They nullified the instructions given to them by relying upon a factor that was forbidden for them to consider by the court. But is there anything the state can do after the fact once a jury says that? No. Can, can no, juries... But- can no. a juror be arrested for no. admitting to that? No. No, I mean, it, it's done. What's done is done. And, you yeah. know, the, the thing that happens in, in with the jury trial, once it's over, it's almost impossible 
to file a motion that you could succeed on in which you're arguing that the jury did something wrong and therefore or considered something improper and therefore it should be vacated. The only times that you can succeed on that uh, typically is if you can prove that someone did their own investigation, they were posting on social media about the case, uh-huh. they lied about their ability to serve on the jury or lied during the voir dire process. But otherwise, it's really difficult. Courts really hesitate to ever get into the inner workings of the jury room. Yeah, for sure. Michael Leonard, this has been another fascinating day. I can't believe we're out of time. Do you want good, to stick good around? Good to be here. Can you stick around for a little I, bit longer? Can I, can I do two more hours? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> do you mind sticking around? I have one sure. more topic I want Absol- to get to. Absolutely. Right, Let's tell do you it. What, we'll take a break. We'll do All the right. news. We'll have a little bit more with Michael yeah. Leonard after this on WGN. Thank you very much, voiceover man Ernie. Yes, this is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We'll talk a little Roe v. Wade coming up with Professor Leroy from the University of Illinois. Uh, we're talking with Michael Leonard right now from LeonardTrialLawyers.com. Do you mind if I try and get an answer to the question of the day, Michael? Go for it, I know you're so curious about this. Go for it. I can't wait. Yeah, 1980, Massachusetts was the last state to outlaw what? Let's go to Dan. Dan, you're on WGN. Hey, Dan. Hi, how are you? Good. What's your guess? Assault rifles. Good guess. Not the answer. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sorry, Dan. Let's go to Dave. How are you doing, Dave? Moderately neato. Oh, you're doing moderately. Okay, sounds good. What What's your guess? How about uh, blue laws? So, where they have stores open, uh, uh, prohibiting stores open on Sunday? Massachusetts, the last state to ban stores opening on Sunday. No, that's a great guess, though, Dave. Thanks for playing. I'm sorry your day didn't get much better there. Thank you much. All right, we had Dan, we have Dave, and now we have Dennis. Three Ds. Dennis, how you doing, my friend? Very good. Yourself? I'm doing great. What's your uh, What's your guess? Right turn on red. Right turn on red. And that is the answer to the question of the day. Yes. that's good. States, especially in the western states, had long stopped banning right turns on red. But during the energy crisis of the 70s, the Carter administration really pushed for more states to allow a right turn on red. The thought being it keeps traffic going, not as much idling. Massachusetts was the last holdout, and they started threatening to withhold federal funding to Massachusetts unless they got rid of the law. It was a big deal, and not every state or every, not every municipality followed through, but they said that initially 10%, they allowed 10% of their uh, intersections to be a right turn on red. And, and is there a reason why Massachusetts thought that was a bad thing? A lot of it was pedestrians. They had oh, a lot okay. of pedestrian crosswalks, and they really feared, and it, the data has borne out. There are more crashes at right turn intersections involving yeah. pedestrians or not, huh. but the overall uh, sense was there. Interesting. Den- Dennis, how'd you know that answer? Well, I seem to remember something from driver's ed. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't just say Google it. That's good, Dennis. Tell me what, hang on the line. We're going to get you a prize, a $50 gift card to the 5050 Restaurant Group to be used at any one of their 14 fantastic establishments all over Chicago. He including... does not get a, a John Hansen t-shirt? No, no. Wow. No. Let wow. me read the That's sp- cold. Let me make sure I finish the sponsor read there, Michael. Roots Pizza and West Town Bakery is where he can go. And he should get a John Hansen t-shirt. Everybody, can we get on the decals for that? Yeah. She's got that. Hey, Michael, before I let you go, the January 6th trials have continued. A lot of pleas. Some have been starting to go to trial. It's taken a long time. Your general reaction to some of the either the sentences that we've seen or the or the cases, how they played out. I guess I'm not too surprised. I mean, they charged hundreds of people and there's been 
hundreds of pleas. There's probably been 90, 95% of them have pled guilty. A very small handful have chosen to go to trial, mm-hmm. including the most recent one you were talking about. And I think in his case, it was more charged as a felony and as a assault. The case I'm talking about, by the way, is Aaron Mostovsky. He's 35. If you can picture the pictures that you all saw, he was wearing raccoon fur and a police garb on, and he was sentenced to eight months in prison for his role in it. Yeah, and so I think a lot of people chose not to go to trial because they're misdemeanor offenses. So they mm-hmm. knew that they were going to get probably a slap on the wrist and there's no reason for them to go to trial. In the case you're talking about, I think there's been a backlash because that defendant, I guess his father is a judge, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so when they heard the sentence, they were disturbed at how low it was. But I think, as you pointed out, his federal sentencing guideline range was pretty low. It was 10 to 16 months. Yeah. So so he got an eight-month sentence, which is below the guidelines, but which is also, though, common. However, in a case like this, I can see a reason why you would want to give a more severe sentence, because there is this perception that the person's getting treated differently because their, their um, relative is a judge. But isn't that even harder on the judge or lose-lose? Because then the judge has to say, well, I can't just give this kid... Yeah. I shouldn't say Katie's 35 years old, a man, a sentence because his son is, I can't try and for propriety's sake. So they really, judges have tough jobs. It's tough. Well, but the way that can come into play in a federal sense in particular is that there's the, one of the factors they have to consider, which they do in state court too, is the concept of deterrence. Okay. Mm -hmm. Specific deterrence. Will this particular individual be specifically deterred by, by my sentence and also general deterrence, right? So what impact will this sentence have on criminals, essentially defendants in general? Mm-hmm. You could make the argument in that case that for purpose of general deterrence to try to send a message to society that a higher sentence might have achieved the goal of general deterrence better than giving him a lower sentence. So that's where that could come in and it would be a legitimate consideration by the judge. And I've been reading some judges' opinions on these or when they issue sentencing and they allude to something along those lines that this cannot happen in this country and we need the message to go forth that that is the case. At the same time, you got to try the person or give the sentence to the person in front of you, right? And what yeah. the facts of the case are. you got to balance both those things. I mean, I think as the judge who's going to be on your show in a couple of weeks will point out, it's a difficult task. You're balancing this whole life history this person's had. Oftentimes, a defendant might come before you who's had multiple convictions. You have to take that into account. And then you have your face with a with a defendant who has no criminal history at all, but has done something you know very bad. Right. And how do you balance that? How do you deter that person? How do you deter other people who might be taking cues from that sentence? The the reality is in, in a lot of cases, which I think the January sixth doesn't fit in this category, but in a lot of other cases, there really really is no societal deterrent effect you know mm-hmm. no one's paying attention to so many of these cases but right. this one they are they are so you can appropriately send a message and it's still consistent with the sentencing guidelines to do that because you're you're taking to the fact that, like we said general deterrence upon others right and i think that they want to rid the notion of oh well you know a bunch of people walked in there a bunch of people were spraying bear spray at police officers i just got caught up in the moment i think they really want to send a message that is not an excuse for this they do and i think uh, a little bit maybe surprisingly i think that there was this perception that the people that did go to trial who were raising this defense that, hey, it's my president told me to do it, mm-hmm. that's failed miserably. No no one has bought that at all. But I think there was the idea that that was going to gain some traction. And maybe if he was still was the president, maybe that defense would work better. Mm-hmm. But people have really seem, seemingly soundly rejected that approach. 
Yeah, it's a it's a complicated thing, and I I find myself I, I, way too often I feel like I'm way too sympathetic to people because I have read testimony of defendants who have you know argued that look they got swept up in moments, and I believe a lot of that right, and they've been bought into conspiracy theories online, and that happens to people. I've had friends and family who go down that route, so you are sympathetic, but then I try to like put myself emotionally to how I felt just as a viewer on that day. Worried that our constitution was about to be overthrown. Yeah, and that you- was that was scary for all of us. That's where I yes. come down on that one, especially when I see, you know, people attacking law enforcement with sticks and clubs yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, you just can't have that be tolerated. Right. But judges are in tough positions. Michael, uh, I almost called you Michael Leroy. No, that's the next guest. Michael Leonard. Boy, it's been a great conversation again. Oh, in a couple weeks, you're going to be back, and we have a judge on, as you've been talking about, too. Yeah, we've uh, enlisted uh, Judge Rebecca Palmeyer, who is the chief judge of the Federal District Court here in Chicago, and a very interesting person, had a a very interesting career before she hit the bench, and now that she's on the bench, she leads the court, and is just a very approachable person, normal. No no judgeitis there, John. (laughs) There you go. Look forward to that conversation. Michael, have a good one. Thanks for having me. Take care. Take care. All right, let's take a break. Then we'll talk to Professor Professor Leroy after this on WGN. 720 WGN, and uh, this is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Uh, We've had Professor Leroy on from the University of Illinois many times, either on this program or even on Your Money Matters the other day, talking about unions. Professor, we're going to talk a little Roe v. Wade, and I know that's a difficult conversation to have for a lot of folks, but we're going to kind of stick to some basics and explain some stuff. You sound good with that, Professor? I'll, I'll give it my best, John. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's always great to have you on, and I appreciate it. I, I, I think that the best place to start, well, I don't even know where to start with this conversation, but this is obviously, and could be, and actually, before we say anything, this was a draft opinion written in February. Professor, we do not know if this will be the final opinion, correct? That's correct. And of course, as people know from reading papers, this is unprecedented to leak uh, a draft opinion, and it has caused a huge stir um, in our nation. Right. And the draft opinion, which I believe was a 5-4 decision written by Justice Alito in the majority, is a real complete strip of Roe v. Wade, and essentially that it would be gone. And a lot of people have started raising questions that if this is the opinion, that a lot of other rights could be next. Let's break this down one by one. I want to start with the basic principle, Professor, of... You know, in the Constitution, certain rights are are given to us, right? We have the right to free speech, that Congress shall not abridge our right to free speech, free press, uh, religion, right to bear arms. But there's a lot of rights that we enjoy today that are not written in the Constitution. How does that happen? Right. Excellent place to start. First of all, the draft opinion resets the judicial um, platform for determining what is a constitutional right. The draft opinion says um, constitutional rights are only referenced explicitly in the Constitution and or by reference to something called the common law at the time the Constitution was drafted, which would be a body of judge-made law. So it's setting 1787 as the platform. Now, to your observation, John, a Bill of Rights was enacted as a complement to and and a a part of the Constitution to articulate our rights to free association, free speech, um, um, freedom to uh, worship as we see fit, freedom from uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, and so forth. So 
Now let's get to the next part. Like, where did our rights evolve from that document? And the key is something called the 14th Amendment, the Due Process Clause. In it, it has a limitation on states, and it says states shall not deprive a person, any person, of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. This repeats a, a restriction on the federal government, only it applies to state governments. Now, here's where we have contact in this, in, in this discussion. Starting in 1923, the Supreme Court looked at a case. It involved a man who was criminally prosecuted for teaching German. Um, he was teaching the Bible in German to a 10-year-old boy in a Lutheran church, and this was a minister. And he was prosecuted, and the law at that time in Nebraska prohibited any instruction in a foreign language. There was a lot of um, sentiment against Germans and generally xenophobia, anti-immigrant. And the Supreme Court, and this was a conservative Supreme Court, implied a right of privacy to teach a child in German, a right of instruction. Um, And so I think it's fascinating to start the conversation here because it's in a church. Uh, It involves an implied right that isn't expressly mentioned in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And that's where Roe v. Wade comes out of a stream of precedent dating back to 1923. I have a couple questions uh, before we go forward. So before the 14th Amendment and the idea that the federal, that the states, that states could not infringe on uh, any person's right to those three things you mentioned, would states have laws on the books that would infringe on those rights, but the, the federal government said, hey, that's up to the states. That, yes, <laughs> and that was the point. Uh, the point was after the Civil War uh, was won by the North, uh, then the political battle ensued to legislate their values into law. And if we remember from our civics or our history class in high school or perhaps in college or wherever, uh, recall that we had black codes and recall that we had uh, a Reconstruction era in our in our history. But to keep a long story short, <clears throat> Southern states enacted legal disabilities that essentially made black people quasi slaves again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they couldn't, uh, they couldn't work a job with white people. They couldn't be in a, a train carriage with a white person it, it, and so forth. They couldn't be on the road after sundown. We had these sundown laws. Oh, and yeah. so the point of the 14th amendment was to say, that states cannot infringe these basic rights for all people. And at the time, the frame of reference was uh, recently uh, freed slaves, but it also was immigrants, basic and, and primarily Chinese immigrants who were subject to all sorts of specific legal disabilities, restrictions. So that was the thought. And, and it really goes back to the Declaration of Independence, that we are all created equal. And so it was really, the 14th Amendment was an effort to put that into a legal code. Okay, so the 14th Amendment does that, and then in 1923 you have the, a conservative Supreme Court pull out the word privacy, which is mentioned nowhere in the Constitution or in the amendments, and say, this is a right that does exist, and the 14th Amendment and its due process means that the states cannot infringe on your privacy. Do I understand that correctly? You're working up the timeline great. Okay. Absolutely. Great. And this is, uh, we got a long way to go, but we've reached a natural <laughs> stopping point. So, Professor okay. Leroy, take a break, take a moment. Yep. We're going to do the news here in a moment. I, I, I just want, I know this may seem 
tedious to some people, and maybe you know all this, but as someone who I love history and I love talking law, as you all know here on this program, there's things still that I don't quite understand the evolution of how where we got to where we are. And I think it's important to understand that context as we have the conversation of where to go next. And we'll do that next after the news here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. Well, looking forward to that conversation up next at 3 o'clock. Well, this is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. And we're joined by Professor Michael Leroy of the University of Illinois, continuing our conversation about Roe v. Wade and how we got to where we are today. And, Professor, we were talking through the 14th Amendment, the Due Process Clause, that essentially said that states had to honor uh, or, you know, had to be held to the same standard, I guess you could say, honoring the federal laws or at least honoring the rights that were laid out. And the 1923, a case that uh, explicitly kind of laid that out. Uh, where do we go from there as to how we establish, I guess you could say, quote unquote, new rights, rights that were not laid out uh, word by word in the Constitution? Well, I think the next point on our timeline is in the 1960s when uh, a case arose called Griswold versus Connecticut. Now, that deals with reproductive rights. By way of background, Connecticut had a statute called the Comstock Act of 1873. It prohibited any sale, distribution, or counseling related to contraceptives. Um, And... As the 1960s unfolded and we had different norms uh, and behaviors uh, uh, about sex, uh, what happened is uh, Planned Parenthood in Connecticut wanted to challenge this law. And another way of putting it is they wanted to counsel married couples. I want to emphasize this. This, this Their concern was providing counseling and, if necessary, um, contraceptives for married couples. They couldn't do this, John, under the Connecticut law. So this went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that a, uh, there is a marital right to contraceptives and to contraceptive counseling, and that no state could infringe that right. There were two different theories expounded there. Um, one came directly out of the 14th Amendment, which we're talking about. Another one said, look, if you, if you take a Several of these amendments, the first, the third, and, 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 and the 14th, they all talk about the sanctity of your home. And Justice uh, William O. Douglas said there's no place for the police to uh, be involved in the bedroom of a married couple. I think that's a, a commonsensical idea that right. many people understand. But I have to say, going back to Justice Alito's draft opinion, he's going after that line of precedent, too. I mean, and that's that's what is breathtaking and alarming about this draft opinion. Part of it is just it it is clearly striking down growth, but it's also undercutting the evolution of these privacy rights. And so, one implication, if this draft becomes an actuality, is <clears throat> you might see states start to regulate the sale and distribution of contraceptives. Perhaps they'll limit it to adults. Minors can't get a hold of contraceptives. I don't know what form it would take. Right. But he's really sending a signal to, uh, to people who believe that contraceptive is sinful or inappropriate that it should be regulated and subject to criminal sanctions. So I wanna, that's the next point. I want to pause you here because I want to know, you know, what in the draft makes you think that that is what he's talking about? Is he saying, is it because he says that... Um, 
The 14th Amendment does not open up the door to all the rights that we've already had, only the ones that have, I think he called it like a lasting legacy, or it's been a big part of our country for a long time. And you would say that since contraceptive is, I mean, in the timeline of our country, a relatively, quote unquote, new thing around the right same time as Roe, that that would not fall under that test that Alito would be setting for future courts. That's right. So, and and to answer your question, uh, and this is just stunning to me and to a lot of people who have read this draft. It spends 29 pages talking about the appropriateness of overruling Supreme Court precedent. So let's just pull away from the mm-hmm. contraceptive argument for just a minute and just think about our constitutional system. Uh, the federal courts were set up to be the the provider of continuity in our system. They're the least susceptible to to change. They do they, things do change over time, mm-hmm. but you have the you have the Congress and the president who can react more in the moment, and so this is sort of a stabilizing influence. And now, when Justice Alito in twenty nine pages is saying, you know what, our precedents don't have the 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 value or the weight that that people have given it, it really opens up a Pandora's box. Like, well, what precedents count, which don't? And he anticipates that, and he says again. U-1787 as your model or your framework. And that begs the question, how much has society changed from 1787? Some things are very much the same, but some things are very different. I want to ask something, and this has been floated by a lot of people to say, look at how crazy this opinion is. And, you know, is states could then say interracial marriage is illegal. Giving what you've read in the draft of Alito's opinion, is that an overreaction or could one make the argument that that would be exactly that would fall under that test that Alito's talking about? That's a valid concern. It's a valid concern. Now, I'm not saying that there is the flip- political will to do it. I'm not saying that there would be cases that would cause states to do that. I'm just saying that if you were to follow the test that Alito has allegedly laid out in this draft, that that theoretically a state could make that argument and win. Yes, they could, and. I, I would be a little more, I would lean in more to the possibility that a state could actually enact a law that prohibits interracial marriage. Uh, but, you know, that that is a topic perhaps for another day. Yes, yes. But there's no doubt in my mind that, that he would greenlight that kind of approach because, um, you know, he, he would say that that was not a fundamental right. It was not a recognized right. Um, and, and he would be correct. Uh, the question is, is that... Is that the constitutional value you want for today? I would just add one more point, and this goes back to your observation about, like, why did, why did states have to be subject to a due process clause? And it was because, to, to make a long story short, states enacted uh, racially biased, in fact, racist laws, including laws that prohibited blacks from voting. And so, you know, his counterpoint is, look, if you want to enshrine these rights in law, just elect people to do it. And I get that. I respect that. I honor that. But it it turns a blind eye to history where there isn't equal access to a ballot box. And, And the democratic processes that he's placing so much faith in don't operate in a way to express those values as a right. Yeah. The idea of like leaving things to states does have so, hold some water in some places. In fact, the, isn't that what the 10th Amendment kind of lays out, that things that have not been covered here are up to the states? Absolutely. And so 
Oh, there's just a huge expanse of things that states can do short of infringing on people's fundamental rights. Right. Uh, so they can do that. Um, and, and you know, they certainly can do that. Roe didn't take that away from states, and that's not where his argument is. His argument is simply it's not a fundamental right uh, to terminate a pregnancy uh, if you're a woman. Uh, and that, that's his argument. Yeah. We often say, and we've been saying a lot, this is Alito's opinion, and as he wrote it, but if this draft is to be, and it has been verified, and it is signed, let's say, if it actually happens by five ju- I mean, he's essentially speaking for five justices, himself included, that agree. I mean, they sign on to this, right? They did. Or they, they, they have. Now, maybe they'll change. And right. Maybe he will change. I mean, I think, you know, apart from my own feelings about uh, uh, how bad this would be um, as, as a constitutional uh, decision. I, I think from the standpoint of the court's legitimacy, the court will hurt itself if it puts out this opinion and if it has five justices sign on. What might happen, John, I'm just guessing, what might happen is a couple of justices, um, and I'll be specific, I, I, would, I would wonder if Kavanaugh and maybe Amy Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh is the most open to sort of a, a more centrist approach, would write a separate plurality opinion that would say, you know, this goes too far. We still believe in stare decisis, which is precedent. And we agree with the outcome here, but we, we, we're, not, we're not signing on to the, the full draft here. You know, that cre- could create a little uncertainty about uh, its precedential value. I would just note, Roe had that, that fragmented quality. It was a seven to two decision, but the majority was fragmented. Right, and so uh, to, to have this unanimity, uh, it makes it all the more striking. I want to make the argument that some pro-lifers make, and the idea being that yes, this goes against precedent. And yes, it's been in the in the rules for fifty years, but Plessy v. Ferguson was too, and Brown v. Board threw that out. Right, like that there that the Supreme Court can act in important ways, and pro-life people would say it's murder to murder an unborn child and that the Supreme court has its right to do that. If it sees it, that that is the right thing to do. Your your reaction to that? Yeah. Two quick reactions. One, uh, the time between Plessy and Brown was something on the order of 70 to 80 years. Now that's most people's lifetime. So if the Supreme court is fundamentally wrong about a decision, most people won't live long enough to see the court overrule it. That's point one. But point two, I, I want to lean into Justice Alito's argument and, and accept it at face value. I, I went through this morning, I went through the Constitution. It makes 49 references to person, just the word person. And John, these um, anti-abortion laws define personhood. Most of them do. I, interestingly, uh, Mississippi doesn't. Uh, but most of them, Alabama, Georgia, and others, define personhood as originating at the time of conception. And so to get to my thought, I believe that if if this is the originalist view of the Constitution, that when 2030 rolls around and it's time to take a required census, that all pregnant women and their their unborn children should be counted. And Mm. states like California, New York, and Illinois – uh, who have, I would presume, more pregnant women than states like Mississippi, count those, count, count their unborn children as persons, and you would have a reapportionment. Uh, 
under the Constitution where more representation would flow to the states with more pregnant people. Uh, What I'm saying is this literalism can really fall down on itself at some point. Do I think that's seriously going to happen? No, I don't. But that's the premise for this. So you you mentioned the pro-life argument is Roe sanctions murder. And I I get it, and I'm sensitive to that. I'm saying if if we're going to go the other direction now, then let's let's make sure that unborn children have their full constitutional rights. They they have a right to be counted in the census. <clears throat> they have a right not to be excluded from uh, SNAP benefits, you know, um, mm-hmm. food um, and welfare benefits. Uh, if health care is provided to to people uh, generally as a matter of law, then it should be provided directly to them. Not just after they're born, but in utero. Let's let's just be consistent about it. Interesting. Yeah, and I think that, that you're making a point of where, you know, you go in these different directions, the permutations that come after it are interesting. Professor, I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to have time for one more sure. sh- uh, short little segment after this here, and let's get legal powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. I want to relay one caller who called sure. and said along the lines of, we are people are overreacting because abortion will still be legal in the states that want it to be uh, legal in, which is the case, right? If this if this passes, so I, I think the caller already was, "What's the big deal? Don't overreact. It's not going to be illegal everywhere." So I think that's a fair point. Um, I think that's a fair point. I, I would offer two sort of thoughts uh, in conjunction with that. One, uh, if the next uh, uh, election, if the twenty twenty four election produces a majority of Republicans uh, in Congress and a Republican president then um, I, I would anticipate that there will be a federal law outlawing abortion. So the premise from the caller is valid for today. I'm not sure it's valid 2024 and thereafter. Right. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's a possibility. We don't know. The other is um, watch Missouri and watch their, watch their abortion law because they, they have a version of an abortion law that's modeled after uh, Texas, and, and, and essentially it says if, if a Missouri citizen leaves the state for abortion services, anybody – so that would be in Illinois. Mm-hmm. It could be anywhere, but it, you go across the river, you come into Illinois. Anybody who aids and abets that is going to be subject to a civil lawsuit. And so now we are and, – and so we, we've seen Texas, now Missouri, likely others, I believe. And so, again, that sort of – that sort of questions the premise that you still have a right and so forth. There is a harassing quality to these laws that interferes with the ability of people in states where this is legal to go ahead and provide services. So it's a good thought the caller has. Right. I uh, Right. And But also you could say that Alito's draft opinion doesn't just say this is for abortion. It, it's, uh, people are really up in arms, I think, the idea of that this may throw out a lot of other precedents, which we don't have much time, Professor Leroy, but you looked into how often precedents get thrown out, or more accurately, how quickly they get thrown out. How unusual is it a precedent that's been here for 50 years to be thrown out versus one that's been around 10 or 20 years, let's say? Sure. I I published a study in 2014. It's called Death of a Precedent. Uh, It's online if people want to check it out. What I, I found 205 decisions uh, rendered by the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court specifically, explicitly overruled. Now, they have, the Supreme Court has all sorts of ways that they avoid a precedent or narrow it, but these were explicit overrulings. By the way, I don't think I'm, I'm perfect on my count. I think I'm close because I was exhaustive and I 
I checked my study out with others. But here's the point. They last, on average, about 20 years. Roe is 49 years. I found only 30 decisions out of 205. So 30 decisions since 1808 when the first decision, um, 1810 was when the first decision was overruled. John, only 30 times has the court uh, uh, overruled a precedent that was more than 49 years old. And most of those were maritime cases that involved these technical issues about sea law, like what happens if a ship hits another ship and so forth. And, and technology caused these delayed over uh, turning of precedent. So right. just from a statistical standpoint, we are in a very strange place here if this holds up. Right. And I will just make the argument that pro-life people will make is that this decision is worthy of that. And that's certainly an argument yeah, that can be I, made, too. Yeah, absolutely. That That's their argument. And to that point, I would just simply say... Um, it, it, because there are other freedoms that, it, if we go back to where we started, we, we started in a church where German was being taught, a Lutheran church. That is a privacy right. And, and so I, in my classes, we read John Harlan. He's the great dissenter from the 1880s right. through the early 1900s. But my point is, what comes around goes around in constitutional law. And so if, if, if Roe has lived, outlived its usefulness for the majority of the court— uh, then okay, but I mean to undermine all the the, the value of precedent is is such a destabilizing right. force. Right. You know, Professor, we're out of time. Thank you for joining us. Yep. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Take care. Yeah, take care. BJ had a call. I don't have time for it, but he said, "Why are two men talking about abortion? Where are the women?" Fair point, BJ. I think we were talking more about the law. I'm the host. I can't control my gender right now, but I. Uh, I appreciate you checking my blind spot for me. Thank you, BJ. That'll do it for Let's Get Legal Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We will be back next week. Dave Plyer coming up next after the news on WGN.